The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are currently working our way through 1 John. In our study last week, we looked at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1, and we talked about the importance of confessing our sins. 1 John 1, 9, very familiar verse. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we said the word confess here is the Greek word homologeo. All right, it comes from to speak and the same. In other words, it's to say the same thing. So confessing your sins to God is saying the same thing about your sin that God says about them, namely that they are offenses against Him. It's in the present tense here, which implies ongoing action. So believers are continually agreeing with God about their sin that they have violated His Word, they have violated His holiness, they're confessing that, they're agreeing. Now, as the believer continues confessing their sin, it says that they, he, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, forgiven and cleansed here are synonymous in this context, and they refer to the ongoing cleansing that is necessary for fellowship with God. If you want to have fellowship with Him, you need to be cleansed by Him. So when a believer sins, he doesn't lose the forgiveness that he gained at salvation. That is his position before God. That position is unchangeable. But our sins hinder our ongoing fellowship with Yahweh. As we have said, this book is all about fellowship. That's what he's talking to us about. Now, we live in a day where sin is greatly minimized. All right? We talked about this some last week. Christians today don't seem to see sin as something bad, something damaging, especially if it doesn't affect them. You know, we just feel, maybe it's not right, but it's not really a sin. It's not really a big deal. And I believe it's the church's job to be a pillar and ground of the truth. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul writing Timothy says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, Paul calls the church here a pillar and a support or buttress of the truth. Now, in Ephesus, where Timothy was, this pillar would have had a special significance because the greatest glory of Ephesus was the temple of Diana or Artemis. The temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And one of its features was its pillars. It had 127 pillars, every one of them a gift from a king. They were all made of marble. Some were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. And it may be that the idea here of the word pillar is not so much support as holding it up, That's the idea, I think, of ground. But pillar is the idea of display. The idea that the church's mission is to uphold the truth of the Word of God for all men to see. We're to display the truth. That's the church's job. The church is to support and display the truth. We are not the source of truth. The Bible is. But we're to support it. We're to display it. The Bible is God's Word. And the church is to support and display that truth. Now, one of the problems we have in this country is the largest church in the United States today. Anyone know what church that is? Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) The largest church in the country today is Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, pastored by Joel Olstein. And the thing is, Joel does not talk about sin. Okay? He purposely avoids that subject. He teaches that we are being saved from unhappiness. We're being saved from failures in life. Not from sin, not from God's wrath. Osteen does not teach that we need a divine rescue from judgment, but rather simply a self-improvement plan. 
And so, you know, there's a lot of other churches copying him, but, you know, that's why his church is so big. He doesn't talk about sin. Not going to offend anybody. Not going to get anybody mad. When you go to that church, all he's going to tell you is God loves you, and he's got a wonderful plan for your life, and he wants the best for you. He wants you rich. He wants you healthy. He wants everything. Praise the Lord. That's, that's the church. That's why it's full. And it's not just Joel today. The church seems to downplay sin and its effects. But the author of this little epistle, John Eliezer, he wants us to know that sin destroys our fellowship. It destroys our fellowship with Yahweh. And it can also cause great pain in our life. Now, this verse is an amazing verse. You know, we need to, we're going to sin, people. And when we do, he says, if you confess your sins, God is faithful. He's just. He will forgive them. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, does the fact that we can confess our sins, and then God forgives us our sins and cleanses us, mean that we don't have to be concerned that much about sin? I mean, does it mean we can pretty much do what we want, live how we want, and then we just confess our sins, and everything's okay? The answer to those questions is no. Big no. There is a consequence to sin. And listen, people, it matters very much how we live. Let's clear clarify one thing before we go any further. What is sin? When we're talking about sin, what is it? Well, he tells us in this epistle, he's 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. God has given us his word, his law, and to go against that is sin. In 1 John 5, 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there's a sin that does not lead to death. So that tells us there are some sins that do lead to death. All right? So we'll understand the destructive power of sin and the damage that it can bring into your life. I want us to spend our time this morning looking at a great man of God and the severe price he paid for sin. I was reading 2 Samuel this past week, and I'm always struck by David and his sin as I read those passages. I'm struck by the fact of what his sin cost him. The story of David and Bathsheba, I think, is a very familiar story to most Christians. But what happened to David after he repented of this sin, I don't think is all that well known or understood. So let's look at what David's sin cost him this morning, and hopefully come away from this with a greater understanding of the heinousness of sin. God said that David was a man after his own heart. Speaking of Saul, the scriptures say this, but now your kingdom shall not continue. So God's going to take the kingdom from Saul. Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. So Saul's replacement, David, is to be a man after Yahweh's own heart. Paul says this of David. And when he had removed him... Speaking of Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now, commenting on a man after my heart, because you, know, you read this and you think, wait a minute, we know what David did. We're familiar with the story. We know how much he got involved in sin. And why does God call David a man after his own heart? Albert Barnes writes this. He says, The expression is found in 1 Samuel 13, 14. The connection shows that it means simply a man who would not be rebellious and disobedient as Saul was, but would do the will of God and keep his commandments. This refers doubtless rather to the public than the private character of David, to his character as king. It means he would make the will of God the great rule of law and his reign and contradistinction um, from Saul, who as a king had disobeyed God. 
So one of the characteristics, especially that distinguished David's rule, was he rightly guarded the people from idolatry and all the abominations which attended idol worship. He kept them faithful to the adoration of the pure and holy God of their fathers. So, you know, people struggle with this idea of David being a man of their God's own heart. And how do we say that when we know what he did? And so Barnes here is taking the position, well, he means as a king, he did a good job. Personally, he was a mess, but as a king, so, and I don't know that I buy that, people. Well, we're going to get into this as we get a little further along here. But as we'll see, David had his failures, but the bent of his life was to love and serve Yahweh. But then there's Bathsheba. Now let's look at the, the story of David. I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but let's, uh, let's just trace it through. We're going to do a lot of scripture reading this morning. 2 Samuel 11.1 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You see a problem there? Well, in the spring of the year, and they, they went to battle in spring because it was after the latter rains were over, uh, and they resumed military activity. Okay, the rains are done, let's go back to war. All right, so David ordered Joab to launch an invasion of Rabbah, the capital of Ammon. David was the king of Israel, and under the blessing of God, David had become one of the greatest kings in all the earth. Although it was customary for kings to accompany their armies, they didn't always have to do that. But David, for some reason, this reason is not given, he stayed in Jerusalem. At this time, David had been king for 17 years. All right? He should have gone to battle with his men. That's where he belonged. But instead, he stays behind and he sends Joab. Joab is David's chief of staff, his four-star general. I see a principle here. All right? Here's what I see in this. When you are where you shouldn't be, you become subject to temptations that you wouldn't experience if you were where you belong. You understand that? Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? It's a lot of times the reason we mess up so bad is we're in the wrong place to start with. We shouldn't be there. Heard someone say, if you're trying not to eat cookies, stay out of the kitchen. And that's the thing. You've got to watch where you go. You've got to watch what you see. You've got to watch what you hear. If you're trying to avoid temptation... Makes sense. Don't go where you shouldn't, all right? It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So David is looking at a woman that he shouldn't be because he's supposed to be at war. And David had three beautiful wives at the time, but obviously he didn't have this one, so you've got to want what you don't have, right? Three beautiful wives is not enough. He's tempted when he sees Bathsheba. And David sent and inquired about the woman. What he, <laughs> it's just great, David, you should be getting off your roof. What not, hey, who is that woman? And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So instead of fleeing the temptation that he came across on that roof, he pursues it. He should have done what Joseph did in Genesis 39. This is the way you deal with temptation, okay? Genesis 39, 11, and 12. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house were there in the house. She caught him by his garment. This woman had been after him for a while. All right, but now they're alone, so she grabs him, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. All right, he turns and runs. That's how you deal with temptation. Run! But David didn't do that at all. He's pursuing it. He thinks he's king, and so he thinks king is a... This is, you can't even imagine the power of a king in the ancient times. I mean, they were, they were often viewed as gods, okay? So he's a powerful man. It says, so David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lied with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. All right, this is adultery, people. This great man of God has just violated two of the Ten Commandments. Right? First of all, 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And that's what he's doing. He's coveting his neighbor's wife. He saw her, and I got three, but I like that one, okay? He's coveting, and then he commits adultery. You shall not commit adultery. So his coveting leads into adultery. Now, notice the parenthesis at the end of verse 4 here. What's this about? Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Why are they telling us that? It's an important part of the story here. Okay, this is the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, which I keep recommending this to you people. It's awesome. If you want to know the background culturally, what's happening, very helpful. Here's what he says. She was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. This notice indicates that Bathsheba had just finished menstruating, eliminating any possibility that Bathsheba could have been pregnant by her husband, thus complicating David's attempt to cover up the misdeed. So they just want us to make sure, okay, it's not her husband that got her pregnant, okay? Because the next verse we read, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David's sin now is getting him in trouble. You know, it started by him not being where he should be, then he begins to covet, then he commits adultery, and now she's pregnant. And he's like, uh-oh, this is not good because her husband's not around. Now, here's what in- I find interesting here. Many Christians here would say, well, David wasn't a Christian. Christians wouldn't do that, right? Let me ask you this. Can a Christian commit adultery? Yes, people. Listen, apart from the grace of God, a Christian can commit any sin that an unbeliever can commit. Okay? Apart from the grace of God. You know, and most sins that are condoned by Christians are just as bad as what David did. But we have a category of sins. These are bad ones. These are not. You know why these ones are not so bad over here? Because we do them. And so they can't be bad, right? Well, look what the Lord says. Proverbs 6, 16. This is, these are awesome verses, people. I memorized these really early in my Christian life, and I'll tell you what, the Lord used them in my life, all right? There are six things that Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness that breathes out lies. You notice there's a bunch of lying stuff in this text here? and one who sows discord among the brothers. You know, Christians do all these things. They lie, they slander, they cause discord, and they don't think anything of it. But they'll look at someone like David and say, he can't be a Christian. He can't be a man of God. He sinned. Listen, David should have repented of his sin, but he doesn't. He just keeps getting in deeper and deeper. And here's a principle. The longer you stay in sin, the worse it gets. The worse it gets. 2 Samuel 11, 6 and 7. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Then Uriah came to him. David asked him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how's the war going. Hey, just wanted to know about the war. How's things going out there? He could care less what was happening. All right? This wasn't it. The crisis brought by the pregnancy required that he do something now. So David determined, well, I'll legitimize it. I'll get her husband back home. He can go spend time with his wife, and then we'll just say, it's his baby. Right? Sounds good. Sounds like a great plan, right? Sounds like he really went to God and asked for wisdom. Listen, this is David. And what really blows my mind about reading this story about David is David goes to battle, and David goes, hey, Lord, what do we do about this? And then the Lord says, he gives them battle plans. Don't go that way. Go around this way. Put an ambush. I'm like, how cool to get battle plans from God. So in this situation, instead of seeking God, what's he do? I'll figure this out myself. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Okay, so he sends him. The crisis brought by the pregnancy required, he's got to do something. He's got to cover this up. He's got to fix it. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house. And there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he didn't go down to his house. Oh, man, he's ruining the plan. Now, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? 
Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Oh, he's, he had to get a man of character, didn't he? So David's plan to cover up his sin failed. Why should he, Uriah argued, have the comforts of home and a conjugal visit when his friends, his comrades were in combat and they were deprived of those things? So David doesn't give up easy. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank. So that he made him drunk. Hey, when you get someone drunk, they do things they don't normally do, right? So let's, let's, do, let's go that route. And in the evening, he went out to lie on the couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So even after David gets drunk, Uriah's sense of loyalty to his comrades prevailed, and he just doesn't do it. All right, so now what do we do? Let's come up with another plan. So David writes a letter. In the letter he wrote, writing this letter to Joab, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Guess how Joab got this letter? Uriah carried this letter back to Joab. So David writes this out here. Take, take your death. Can you imagine handing this to the... This guy who's done nothing wrong. Here, take this and carry it back to Joab. And Joab's probably like, what is wrong with the king? He moves from adultery to murder. Uriah wouldn't sleep with his wife, so David says, I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to fix this thing, all right? 2 Samuel eleven seventeen, And the men of the city came out, and they fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a thing of battle. They got too close. David chastises them for it later, all right? So David is now murderer. He has broken another of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. So David, a man after God's own heart, commits adultery, and then he commits murder. 2 Samuel eleven twenty six. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. People, that is a lousy, weak translation. The New American Standard puts it this way. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's evil. That's a little bit different than, oh, God wasn't really that happy. No, it was evil, raw in the Hebrew. Not once in all this did David confess his sin. He's just scheming. I got to cover this up. I got to do something else. I got to, you know, planning, digging, trying to cover it up. He just keeps piling up. Goes from one sin to another, trying to cover his sins. Proverbs says this, 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But who confesses and forsakes them, will obtain mercy. You think David knew? <coughs> now, lest you think that David is just having a great time sinning it up, okay? because I don't want you to think that. All right, he's, he's definitely involved in a lot of sin, but he's not having the time of his life here. Okay, Let's look at Psalm 38. This psalm is supposed to have been written, composed by David, after his sin with Bathsheba, before his confession. All right, Psalm 38, 1 through 3. A psalm of David... The memorial offering. Oh, Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the torment of my heart. Oh, Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. 
My heart throbs. My strength fails. The light of my eyes is also gone from me. My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest, my nearest kin stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all the day long. I am ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Amen. He finally gets it. He's had enough. And he confesses his sin. Believer, the sooner you come to this point, the better off your life will be. Okay? When you sin, don't try to cover it up. Confess it. Because 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, to confess our sins is to say the same thing about them that God says about us. Willful disobedience breaks our communion with God. When we are in communion with God, we are constantly cleansed by the blood of Christ. This is a beautiful description of the intimacy and fellowship that our union with Christ could bring if we're willing to deal with sin, willing to turn from sin, willing to confess our sin. Well, let's continue with David's story. God sent a prophet to David to confront him in his sin. And Yahweh sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. You get the picture? He's drawing a tight connection here. Okay, There's, a, there's this love relationship. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock. He's got a whole bunch of sheep. Not taking his. Or heard to prepare them for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. He takes the lamb. The one lamb that this man has, he takes that. Now, this case presented by Nathan may appear to have nothing to do with David's crimes. You know, since he's not dealing with adultery or murder here. But what Nathan's case demonstrates is that adultery and murder were only the end results of a more serious crime on David's part, and that's the abuse of power. David is formally indicted by the divine counsel, speaking through the prophet, not only for taking another man's wife, for believing that he could take whatever he wanted, and another thing for being dissatisfied with what God had already given him. He wasn't happy. He wanted more, and he thought he could just take whatever. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Can you imagine what Nathan's thinking? You sorry hypocrite. You sorry hypocrite. You know, it's interesting how easily we see the sin in other people that we can't see in ourselves at all. David just pronounces judgment on himself. The man who's done, who did this, he deserves to die. That's what David would have liked to have done. For judgment, James 2.13, judgment is without mercy for the one who has shown no mercy. Has David shown mercy here? Not at all. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But David is showing no mercy, but insisted that the man must die. Now watch what David says. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Well, I thought David said he deserved to die. Why didn't he put him to death? Because the law forbid it. Okay? When someone stole one of your sheep, what could you do to that person? You require them to pay fourfold. Exodus 22.1 If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox, four sheep for a sheep. So David said he shall restore fourfold. Please remember... Verse 6, okay, take a, take a mental note of verse 6 right now. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. All right, hang on to that. Nathan said to David, you are the man. This story is about you, king. 
Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. See, he tells him, you're the one I'm talking about. And then God reviews the grace that he has demonstrated toward David, going over, look at all I've given you, David. He'd given David everything, but he wasn't satisfied. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives under your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now, notice carefully verse 11. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Do you remember when that prophecy was fulfilled? Absalom took David's concubines up to the roof and went into the concubines. It's just, you know, in this whole setting, you know, to have the wives of the king is to take the kingship. This is it. So this was literally fulfilled, but I want you to see this out of your house. Now keep this in mind, these two verses here. Verse 6, he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Verse 11, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. All right, now David finally repents. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, this is where we pick up Psalm 38, 18, where David said, I have sinned. So David confessed his sin. God forgives him. Now, notice what Nathan says in response to David's confession. Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. People, when we confess our sin, God forgives and cleanses us, and we are restored to fellowship. Does that bother anybody? Someone is bound to say, boy, David sure got away with a lot. I mean, he just, you know, he, got, he does whatever he wants with Bathsheba. He kills her husband. He does all this thing, and he confesses his sin, and now everything's okay. Right? I mean, it makes you think, what the heck, David? You know, is this a get-out-of-jail-free card? What, what's going on here, you know? Well, first of all, if you think that, you're forgetting about Psalm 38. Remember we read Psalm 38, all the misery, all the pain? How miserable David was while he was in sin. And secondly, you're forgetting this. All right? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The law of the harvest is you reap what you sow. When David confessed his sin, God forgave him, restored him to fellowship, but that didn't remove the consequences of his sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can be in fellowship with God, and that doesn't mean everything's wiped out. Let's say that you go out as a Christian and get involved in sex outside of marriage, fornication. And because of your sin, you contract AIDS. Then you confess your sin to God, you're back in fellowship, and the AIDS goes away, right? No. God could do that, right? But chances are you're going to be sick, and chances are you're going to die. Because you reap what you sow. Let's say you just drink too much, you get drunk, and you get in your car and you go out, and you kill somebody. Alright? You confess your sin before God. That person's still dead. You're still going to be tried for manslaughter. Or vehicle, or man, whatever. You're going to, you know. The consequences don't go away. Okay? Just because you confess your sin. You're back in fellowship, and that's where you need to be, because you're going to have a difficult time riding out the storm you've just created. But listen, when you ride it out in fellowship, it's going to be a whole lot different than trying to do it as David was, staying away. David paid way beyond the experience of Psalm 38, okay? Way beyond. David was disciplined fourfold out of his own house. 2 Samuel 12, verses 6 and 11, deal with this. Now let's look at what happened to David after he confessed his sin, after he got back in fellowship. David's four-month-old child dies, okay? 
2 Samuel 12, 14. Nevertheless, because of this, deed you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who was born to you shall die. Okay, David, you're forgiven. You're back in fellowship. You confessed your sin. The Lord's not going to kill you, but the child's going to die. On the seventh day, the child died. So David's four-month-old child of Bathsheba dies because of David's sin. Think about this, parents. Can you imagine how you would feel if your child's death was your fault? Believers, this is something we all have to understand, okay? You never sin in isolation. Our sin affects those around us. It affects our family. Let's say your sin is drunkenness. We're picking on drunkenness today, all right? Will it affect other people in your home? Absolutely, right? You may be verbally or physically abusive to your family because of it. You may lose your job because of your drunkenness. And then you can't provide for your family. You may drive drunk and actually kill some of your family. Our sin affects others. And let me just throw this in here as a side note, okay? From experience in my own life, what I've seen, whenever Christians do stupid things, usually it's under the influence. They drink too much, and then they do stupid things, things they would not have done had they not drank too much. And that's why the Bible condemns drunkenness. It doesn't condemn drinking. It condemns drunkenness. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be controlled by the Spirit. Don't be controlled by alcohol. Be controlled by the Spirit. And so, Christians, that's just something to think about. I, I guarantee you, I can name all kinds of things people did stupid under the influence. Our sin affects others, and David's sin destroyed his family. Remember, fourfold out of your own house. Second, Amnon rapes Tamar. David's son rapes his daughter. Okay? Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. The story is, you know, Amnon's just lusting after Tamar. I mean, he's physically sick. Because he's just so infatuated by this woman. So he comes up with this little plan. I'll pretend I'm sick. I'll be laying on my bed. I'll go to the king. Hey, I'll have Tamar come to me and fix me something to eat so I can eat. So she comes, fixes him, fixes him something to eat. And he goes, oh, bring it to me in the bedroom. So she brings it to him in the bedroom. And he grabs her and he rapes her. And he, she says to him, don't do this. Ask the king. He'll give me to you. Nope. Nope. Can't do that. He would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And you know what happens after this? He falls in love with Tamar and marries her, right? No. It says the hate with which he hated her was stronger than the love with which he loved her. I mean, I read that story and I'm like, well, I don't get what happened here. But now he despises this woman and he throws her and she's like, don't do that. Now you're doing another wrong. Throws her out. Okay? When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So David's son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. David knew that he was the cause of Tamar's pain. Out of your own house, fourfold. So we see death we see sexual sin in David's household because of David's sin. So David is reaping what he has sown, even though he's in fellowship with God. Thirdly, Amnon is murdered by Absalom. See, Absalom plays it cool. He waits a few years to hatch his plan, you know, and then he invites all the king's sons out to a sheep shearing. All right? After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Belahazar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. So let's get them all here so, you know, there's no mistake that it doesn't look like I'm trying to pick on anybody. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. I'm not sure what, you know, get him drunk first before you kill him, you know. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Don't fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. All right? Strike Amnon and kill him. 
So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So he didn't get quite the accurate word. All your sons are dead. So David is being disciplined very severely. We can only imagine the great pain as he watched his family being destroyed. And every time something like this happens, he's thinking back of his sin. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came. One of the, these messengers come to David, then the king's sons show up, and so they're not dead. And their voices, and they wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talamai, the son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. All right, so Absalom takes off now. I'm, I'm going to run. I'm going to be away from David and protect myself. 2 Samuel 13, 36, And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. He's gone, but King David is just longing for Absalom. He's, he hates this separation. He doesn't want this to happen. He was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. In other words, okay, Amnon's dead. I got over that. I want you back, Absalom. I want you back. So then... Number four, fourfold, out of your own house, Absalom had been working on winning the support of the people. So, well, David finally gets him back. He gets him back to Jerusalem. But David doesn't have any contact with him. So Absalom's angry, so he sits in the gate every day. And as people come, he goes, hey, you got some issue I can help you with? You know, and he's basically stealing the hearts of the people. Okay? He's weaning them away from David. And then Absalom affects a coup. And David hears about it, and David flees from the city, running from his life, from his own son. But no matter what Absalom did to David, David still loved him very much. And so they're out, and you know, Absalom is coming out after David and his men. They're out in the wilderness, and David commands his men. They're, they're in battle. They're fighting for the kingdom. And David said, please be careful. Please deal gently with Absalom. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom. So everyone's hearing this. Wait a minute, Absalom's the one leading the battle against us. He's trying to kill us, trying to overthrow us. But we've got to deal carefully with him. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth. So he's just hanging there. Ah, this is great. While the mule was under him, went on, and a certain man saw it, and he told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab goes, Why didn't you kill him? He goes, Well, you heard the king. you got to deal gently. No, I'm not going to do that. There's no way I would do that and violate what the king said. And so Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. In other words, I'm not going to argue with you about this stuff. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom. So Job says, I'll take care of this insurrectionist while he's still alive in the oak. And ten men, Job's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Now, if you're not dead from three spears in your heart, I don't know. This dude is some kind of dude, I guess, you know. But uh, <laughs> anyway, he is dead now, all right? And the king said to the Cushite, is it well with young man Absalom? So this runner goes to David to give him a report on the war. So David's like, okay, he, what's happening here? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved. All right, the king is like, oh my word, they killed my son, Absalom. He, he's, he's heartbroken over this. And it says, he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I think David is wishing that God would have killed him for his sin instead of his son. And it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people 
For the people heard that day the king is grieved for his son, and the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. In other words, it's a great victory, but they're coming back with their heads down in there because the king is mourning over this. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son! My son! Parents, what could be more painful than years watching your family destroyed because of your sin? David knew that pain was his own fault. Okay? There was no question there. David paid fourfold out of his own house because of his sin. David was held to a high standard because he was king, but his chastening was severe because his sin was severe. And listen, God had a purpose in the discipline. He wasn't just punishing David. He was teaching David not to sin. He was trying to help David to grow. We see this in Hebrews 12, 5, and 6. We looked at this last week. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when provoked, reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the ones He loves. He chastises, He skins alive with a whip every son whom He receives. Believer, mark this down. Sin brings discipline. Sin, sin causes pain. Sin is destructive. We are never to take sin lightly. Sin is an affront to God. It will always cost us. Our salvation is secure. But God will chasten us in this life if we fail to walk in obedience because that's what a father does to his children. Now before we close this morning, I want to look at the song of David that we find in Psalm 18, but it's also found in 2 Samuel. Let's look at David's song. This is Samuel 22. This is after Bathsheba, after everything he had done. He says, Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he reward me. For I have kept the ways of Yahweh and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And from his statutes, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him. And I kept myself from guilt. How on earth does David say this? Now, there's a lot of different views on this, as there is any passage of Scripture, okay? Some say this is David before Bathsheba. I don't buy that, okay? Others say that David is talking about the fact that he resisted the remarkably strong temptation to dispose of Saul and take the throne. So David is just focusing on the issue that, you know, when, when he had opportunities to kill Saul and take the throne, he didn't do it. Some view that, that's what's happening here. Others say we never hear him sinning in a similar way after his repentance from that terrible transgression. And that's true. And there's a real sense that after his repentance, David kept himself from iniquity. But I think there may be some truth to all of these views, except for the first one. I don't think that has really is justifiable. But what I want you to do this morning is think of what David is saying here in light of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, David did. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did David confess his sins? Did he do that? Yeah. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. Well, God forgave and he cleansed David. How do we know that? Because it says in 2 Samuel 12, 13, Yahweh has put away your sin. People, maybe, just maybe, David saw himself as cleansed by Yahweh. Maybe he's talking about his position before God. He's talking about the fellowship he now has with God. He understood the principle of 1 John 1, 9, and he dealt with his sin, and he feels righteous in God's sight. That is his position. I think that just shows us the beauty and the power of 1 John 1 9. I mean, that's incredible. Okay? David gets this. He gets this. All right, one more thing before we close. I'm a little ahead today. Okay, see? Huh? Am I okay? I got to take time off from last week? This came to me this week. All right? 
What is the sin that the church today acts like is the unpardonable sin? What sin is it? It's unpardonable. What? No, adultery is forgivable. Divorce. That's the unpardonable sin. Right? I mean, you just you go to a church and it's like, they'll forgive you of anything. Have you had a divorce? Oh, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do anything here. You've been divorced. Okay? Like, that's the unpardonable sin. Let me ask you something. Do Christians, and I'll put this this way, do real Christians, I hate that term. You're either Christian or you're not. Do real Christians get divorced? They do? Okay, well, let me ask you this. Can they be forgiven if the divorce was not biblically justified? Because I think there's biblical justifications for divorce. Some people don't believe there's any. But let's say it's not even biblically justified. Can they be forgiven? Thank you. <laughs> okay. Listen, go back, refer to 1 John 1 9. Can they be forgiven? All right. You know what some people would do with 1 John 1 9? This is what they do to it. If we confess our sins, other than divorce. I mean, obviously, it says that in the white space. It's not in the Greek, but they pull it out of somewhere. He's faithful and just to forgive us. In other words, we can be forgiven everything but divorce. I hope you don't do that to this verse. Listen, if God has forgiven, if a divorced person confesses their sin, God forgives them, God cleanses them, the verse says, of all unrighteousness. How do you think we should treat them? As forgiven and cleansed. Okay? The way God does. God forgave them, God cleansed them from all unrighteousness. How are we to say, well, I don't know, that wasn't justifiable? Now, again, you know, people can say, well, then they can just get a divorce and confess their sin. Are you forgetting the whole message? Do I need to start over? Huh? Okay. Listen, there, there is a payment for sin. Okay. I, I, I have never talked to a divorced person that said, that was the best thing I ever did. <laughs> you know? They're like, oh, that, was, that was horrible. You know, it was miserable. I talked to a man recently, a friend of mine went through divorce, and I, I just wept with him on the phone as he, you know, told me how, how horrible. Tell everybody, this is the worst thing you could possibly do. You know, he's going on and on about how horrible the divorce was. We reap what we sow, but listen, believer, there's forgiveness with God. I don't care what the sin is. If you confess it, if you agree with God, this is sin. God cleanses. This is an important verse, Okay? seems like it's overlooked, though, because we hold things against people that God doesn't. And like, does God need us to be his Gestapo to make sure people suffer a little more than they should? You know, we think that's our justified job to, okay, uh, they can't get away with that. How do you know what's going on in their life? Well, my hope and prayer this morning is that we all will realize the high cost of sin and therefore turn from it and live a life of obedience to God. Listen, there is no joy like the joy of fellowshipping with the God of all creation. Walking with Him. David wrote this, Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. That path of life is a path of obedience. He says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I think what David means here is that nearness to God Himself is the only all-satisfying experience in the universe. There's nothing in the world that will bring you joy like walking in fellowship with God. God created us, and He created us to live in fellowship with Him. Only as we do this will we know true happiness. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You for the example of King David. Lord, I pray we would just be able to get a slight glimpse of the pain, the suffering this man went through because of his sin. Help us to see, Lord, the, the destruction that sin brings into our life. Help us, Lord, to realize you want us on the path because you want us to live an abundant life of joy and fellowship with you. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. May we be gracious, Lord, to each other. Amen. Questions or comments? Previously, and years ago, you know, I 
the reason I came I came directly to which ones and maybe you might know it, but uh, where as far as signal enforcers and stuff uh, that so like if a if a like it's, it's like it's two different things like if a, if a man leaves his wife for whatever reason you know like I said I'm just kind of zipping through you know and get a divorce but whatever. Or for one of leave his her husband for whatever reason, um, is it is it that somewhere I read I thought I thought I read that the the other the person who who got divorced from I mean say for instance okay I'm trying to make it more clear if a, if a if a man divorces his wife okay yeah and I thought I read somewhere. She had to die first before he can be oh, yeah. um, married another. Yeah, married another person. Right. Well, the Bible says if she marries another, she she becomes an adulterer. Okay, and again, I think there's two biblical qualifications. Well, I actually think there's three. There's two that you would agree with me on. One might be up in the air, but it's it's something I hold to anyway. But I think that you know, an unbeliever wants out of the marriage. The Bible says, let him go. Another one, sexually unfaithfulness, okay? A spouse has cheated on his wife, broke the covenant, let him go. I think there's another thing that breaks the covenant, and that is a sexless marriage, okay? I think if you're in a sexless marriage, the, one of the other partners, whoever is holding it back, and I'm, I'm guessing it's not the man, um, has violated the marriage, okay? Because I think that's part. You know, that's, that's the reason it says, listen... Get married instead of burning. You know, it's better to marry than to burn. You know, burn with desire, burn with passion. You know, and that was the reason, one of the reasons for marriage is to keep yourself pure. So that's kind of a violation, I think, of marriage. So, Gary? Probably most common, I'm guessing, uh, reason for divorce is irreconcilable differences. Yeah. Not that. And here's the thing, you know, we, 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 don't, we don't know what goes on in a house. And, you know, we don't know... You know, I mean, some people live in horrible, horrible conditions. Uh, let me say this. Um, good marriages are hard to find. I mean, I know a lot of Christians, and I don't know that many that have what I would call a good marriage. What I mean, the husband and the wife actually love each other. And they're happy together. Because marriage takes work. You both, if you have to work at, you know, accepting other people's, you know, flaws, whatever, idiosyncrasies, whatever, and you have to learn to get along with each other, you know? And I thank God we've been together for 46 years, and uh, I still love her. I don't know if she could say that about me, but <laughs> I, think she I think she would publicly. <laughs> but, it, but it does, it takes work. I mean, we're both type A personalities, and we've been banging heads since before we got married. We're still banging heads. But we bang them a little more gently now. <laughs> There's a little less sparks in the household, but, you know, we understand. It, and it's just, you know, marriage is beautiful, but it's what you make it. And too often we always blame everything on the spouse, you know, it's their fault. Well, it takes two to tangle, it really does. And I've seen very rare cases where just one person causing all the problems, the other person's really working hard and it's just not working. No, it doesn't work that way. Dan? Example when I was in Australia, a lady left the uh, Protestant because they they were lukewarm at best. Okay, so we went to this house church and we were at the Bible study. And this he was an NCO or officer, an Australian Air Force. <clears throat> anyway, uh, he was divorced, and the elders at the house church told him he had to get divorced and go remarry his first wife because he was living in sin. Right. <laughs> that's that's not unusual, and that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Divorce your wife and go back to your other wife, and it's just you know it gets deep. But you know for some reason, and, and I don't really understand why, but divorce is you could be I don't care you could kill somebody and get you know be forgiven, but divorce is like no, we just don't you know. And I've seen that through the church. I just you know I've seen it over and over. It's just like we're not forgiving you for that. That you know let me tell you something. God divorced his wife. He gave Israel a writing of divorcement and he put her away. Yeah, and actually he did kill her. So, <laughs> Stoned her with stones and burned her with fire. Okay? You confess your sins other than divorce. 
Well, there's probably a lot of folks, us and maybe myself included, that would put in there other than what I'm doing, yeah. other than my steps in. Okay, I just got a question. Is porn considered adultery? I don't know. I, I, let me tell you this. I think porn is wrong. I think God never intended you to be in anybody else's bedroom looking at anybody else. You know, I, I mean, you just look at the standards in the eastern countries of how the women dress. Okay? You can't even... You get, <laughs> You don't even know it's a woman. You see their eyes, you know. And Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look on a maid. I'm like, Job, what are you looking at? They're all covered up in this thing. How are you even, you know, doing that? But he understood. But listen, porn is addictive. Porn is destructive because it puts these unreasonable expectations before people. I don't think it's good at all. And the sad thing today is, you know, when I was a kid, you asked to go to the store and buy magazines. You don't need to do that anymore. You just pick up your phone and you can look at anything you want to look at. You know, your computer, whatever. And it's destructive to a relationship. I don't know if I would classify it as adultery, but the Bible says whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in his heart already. And I guess that's why you're looking at her. So, yeah, okay. It's adultery. And a lot of women would definitely... <laughs> I had to think I had to think of the scripture that would I had to, I had to think of the scripture that would back that up um, <laughs> but yeah people it's you know and, and it's it's a sad thing of the day and age in which we live you know but listen here's one of the problems again we go back to this issue of sexless marriages I think if women and this would be an excellent class to teach younger women if women understood how men think okay Women, you got to understand, we don't think like you, okay? You know, you think about sex once a year or once a month, maybe. Men think about sex like every 30 seconds, okay? Nah, maybe every 15 seconds. All right, so it's a thing, and men are visually stimulated, so there's a lot of difference between men and women. And if women understand that, and they're taking care of their men, then they're not looking out at other things. But women, when a man is in a sexless marriage, and he's got this drive that's incredible... And let me tell you how strong this drive is, people. The gods of heaven left heaven because they were tempted by women on earth. They came down and they married women. These gods were in the presence of Yahweh. They left and came down to us. That just shows you how strong the sexual drive is. Okay, That's no reason to justify anything. But I'm just telling you, if the marriage was what it should be, I don't think that men go out looking for other things. Now, again, I understand this also. If you're a jerk as a husband, you can't expect your wife to love you, you know, and show you all this affection and emotion when she goes, you're an absolute jerk. So, okay, it's work, both sides. Happy marriage, everybody's happy. That's the point of it. Gary? about the women's dress in the Old Testament, but what was Sarah wearing that the king desired her? She had very pretty eyes. She had pretty eyes, yes. Well, again, that's the thing, you know. In that, in that culture, you know, you know, you've all heard of the Jewish prayer, I thank God, I'm not Gentile, I'm not a woman. You know, we look at that derogatorily, but it's not always that way. I think, in a lot of sense, the men were thankful that they weren't women because women did all the work in that culture. And the women, we're in a desert culture. We're in a hot culture. The women had to wear black, okay, because they didn't want anything that you could see through. You know, they get, like, the sun gets behind them, and you can see their outline. They didn't want that, so they wore black, and they're out in the, you know, out in the sun wearing this black, and they carried the burden. So I think that when men prayed, I thank God I'm not a woman, they're seriously saying that, you know? So they did a lot of the work. Yeah, it was a lot of the burden, but... You know, obviously, I don't know, if, you know, back in that day, if they wore the burkas, there was just dark clothes, and, but whatever, yeah. I mean, here's Sarah, 100 years old, and everyone's going, what a knockout. You know, all the kings are trying to take her, you know? Dude. <laughs> yeah, we can't. Yeah, I know, it's just, and it didn't matter how many they had, they always wanted more, you know? It's like, wow, this is crazy. And you know what the fascinating, you get to the end of David's life, and uh, David couldn't get warm. 
So what'd they do? Get some more blankets. Right? Nope. Go get a beautiful virgin to come lay with the king. Now, he never had relations with her, that says, but they, and they stressed this beautiful. If she's just keeping you warm, why does she got to be so beautiful? You know? I don't, uh, 